Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we present to you a new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. For more than four decades, Bruce Bennett Lawrence's multivalent and fulsomely prolific scholarship has influenced and imprinted the Western study of Islam and religious studies more broadly, in singularly profound ways. The Bruce B. Lawrence reader, Islam Beyond Borders, edited and executed by Ali Altaf Mia, brings together major texts and fragments from Lawrence's intellectual career in a manner at once eminently accessible and pedagogically fertile. The reader also includes a brilliant and extensive introduction by Alimia that presents a useful conceptual framing for approaching and benefiting from Bruce Lawrence's intimidatingly diverse scholarship that ranges from medieval Muslim views on Hindu thought and practice, South Asian Sufism, modern fundamentalism, the Quran, and Islamicate art and aesthetics. A moving and intellectually enriching interview between Mia and Lawrence that explores the theoretical underpinnings and political manifesto of Lawrence's illustrious career, and an equally moving and productive afterword by historian Yasmin Saikia caps this treasure trove of a volume. The Bruce B. Lawrence reader is sure to delight, captivate, and intellectually nourish scholars of Islam, religion, and indeed non-academics. It will also make a tremendous text to teach in various undergraduate and graduate courses. Here now is my conversation with professors Bruce B. Lawrence and Ali Altaf Mia. Well, welcome uh, Ali and Dr. Lawrence to the New Books Network, my first uh, interview of 2021 and uh, such a pleasure to have both of you on to discuss this uh, staggering book. Uh, Usually, you know, we discuss... uh, one book on new books in Islamic studies. This one book is a an amalgamation of multiple books, articles, uh, selections from the last uh, more than 45 years of uh, the scholarship of a, a tremendous and legendary scholar. So really uh, a pleasure to have both of you on the New Books Network. Um, I thought maybe I will start off by asking Ali a question who has uh, masterfully edited uh, this uh, Bruce Lawrence uh, reader. Um, Ali, maybe could you give our listeners a sense of how this reader came about um, and uh, how what, what would listeners be expected to find in this reader in terms of its uh, organization? How did you go about uh, turning the reader into a reader uh, in terms of its uh, themes, in terms of its sequence? Talk a bit about the, proce- the process of bringing the reader together for our listeners. A bit. Thank you so much, Shirley, for, for having us on. Um, So, yes, I'd be happy to do that. First of all, I want to say that as a graduate student at Duke University, I found the articles as well as the books of Dr. Lawrence to be very useful uh, for my own education. They were at once very rigorous, but also very accessible. They combined um, sharp critical analysis with compassionate translation there, there's always an emphasis on the comparative dimension. Uh, and Dr. Lawrence deploys a number of methodologies. Um, so as a graduate student, I was really um, intrigued by everything I read by Dr. Lawrence. And I wanted to put together in, in the shape of one book the different um, contributions he's made to the study of modernity in religion, to the study of Sufism in South Asia, but also neo-Sufism in the broader global arena, to the study of religious uh, fundamentalism, as well as to the the study of um, Islam 
in uh, Islam and as well as the Quran in um, global history and translating especially the Quran for a public readership. Um, so I wanted all of these valuable resources at one place and I started to con uh, have a conversation with Dr. Lawrence regarding this and slowly it appeared to us that the cro a chronological ordering of the material might not be the most helpful for readers. So it, when I looked at his work, I could clearly see that um, perhaps methodologies would serve as the best rubric for organizing uh, this body of scholarship. So I focused on six different methodologies that will appeal to readers in religious studies, South Asian and Middle Eastern studies, as well as Islamic studies more specifically. So the first methodology is theorizing Islam. And this is moving beyond just description or even analysis. It's really looking at how do we make sense of um, the continuities and the ruptures of Islam as world historical event. And in its 1400 years, the second methodology was revaluing Muslim comparativists. And then translation is really central to Dr. Lawrence's Ur. So the third methodology is translation, translating Sufi, institutional Sufism. The fourth methodology is deconstructing religious modernity. And this is the section of the reader in which um, I've included the the excerpt from Defenders of God, really a, a path-breaking text, as well as um, one of the texts I use a lot in my Intro to Islam classes, Muslim Engagement with Injustice and Violence. And this um, is a brilliant piece because it traces the different semantic, discursive, political, historical contexts in which jihad has been deployed in the last 1400 years, moving be between scripture as well as theological discourses, but also sociological analysis. And then the fifth uh, methodology is networking. And we all, uh, we, most of us know of the book that Dr. Lawrence co-edited with Dr. Miriam Cook, Muslim Networks from Hajj to Hip Hop. Um, so I think networking is a very salient method methodology in his work. And then finally, reflection itself becomes a methodology, a methodological impulse in his work of late, perhaps in the last 10 to 15 years. So in books such as Who is Allah, for example, but also in his work on uh, Maqbul Fida Hussein. And the objects of reflection in his work are the 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 image, but also the history and the polysemic signifier of the divine in both word and image. So I think that readers will um, find this um, very resourceful because what, what we've done is organize the different um, pieces from different decades into method method methodologies that are very much relevant in um, Islamic inquiry today. So I'll, I'll stop there because um, I, I don't know if Dr. Lawrence wants to say anything in addition to that on methodologies. Well, uh, thank you, Ali Mian. Also, th thank you, Sher Ali, for um, organizing and now uh, projecting this, this interview on a larger platform. Um, I must say that when I think about my life and think about my uh, career as a teacher over uh, the past uh, four decades, and one includes the past decade when I've been retired from Duke but still teaching uh, overseas at Istanbul, at the Alliance of Civilizations Institute there, um, it occurs to me that over the last half century, I have changed a lot in specific issues that I pursued. But I think what Alamiyan um, picked up and uh, others may have seen it, but but only he articulated it in the fashion that uh, now is apparent in the book, that um, I went from kind of a very general overview of Islam and history and looking at particular historians or comparativists and thinking about the issue of translation, which is there, into really a, 
in the last three sections of this book and probably in the last part of my life since 2001, shifting much more to thinking about religious modernity and thinking also about networking and then the whole issue of, of how a performative expression of Islam through painting and what he calls, Alimiyah correctly calls, poly, polysemic signification of Islam, how this really happens. Uh, and my my, my uh, greatest uh, gratitude for, to, to his um, research is not only what he put together in the book, but what he did in, in the introduction where he cites from an essay of mine that's not included but which in one sense thematically links together all the parts he just described. And that's the essay I did on Conjuring uh, conjuring with Islam, number two. And for people who aren't academics, they may wonder why there's a second rather than just a first or simply an un, unmarked Conjuring with Islam. But for those who are academics, they may recognize that Clifford Gertz was the, was the, was the prior person who'd done this. And after 9-11, I thought we had to revisit Clifford Gertz and think about what it was to conjure with Islam post 9-11. So Anamiyah has brought out not only pieces of mind that I've written and put them together in a construct, a methodology that I think is much more apt than the chronology. The methodology that he's constructed for the book is better than would be apparent if one did a simple from point A, which it turns out is 1970, to point B, which is 2020, which is exactly 50 years or half a century. But instead of just doing that half century, to do the themes, the approaches, and some of the content of what I've tried to say in various fora since 9-11, but even more since I graduated uh, in 1972 uh, from Yale University. So thank you, Ali Mia, and thank you, Sher Ali, for this, for this opportunity. Terrific. So, you know, one thing that uh, one uh, feels one one reads the, the reader uh, in its entirety is just the dizzying variety of different texts and themes, as, as you mentioned. It's really going from Asharistani to Osama bin Laden. Uh, and in, in between, you have stops in pioneering work on South Asian Sufism. You have works on the Quran, uh, of course, uh, M.F. Hussain and questions of aesthetics and art, uh, among many other topics, fundamentalism and modernity. So I wanted to begin, we'll go into some more specific themes and chapters in a moment, but I wanted to begin by asking you, Dr. Lawrence, and this might be too broad of a question, but I just wanted to pose it to you, that what would you say is one of the underlying arguments or uh, approaches to the study of Islam, to the study of religion, that you think bring together the staggering diversity of work that you've done over the last more than uh, four decades? Is there some kind of a uh, larger argument that you think glues this scholarship together now that you reflect back through this reader? Well, thank you for the question. Of course, it's way too broad for me to answer uh, quickly or uh, simply with a, with a couple of sentences. But I, I would say as a, a couple of readers, a couple of people who've gotten copies of this book and responded to me, and I won't mention them by name, um, not because they'd be embarrassed, but because I would be, that they, that they could think of something which I hadn't uh, myself considered but uh, the people I'm thinking about have said, you know, we really appreciate the fact that um, this is called the Bruce Lawrence Reader. But the real secret to the reader is a subtitle, Islam Beyond Borders. And I think that uh, it was Alamiyah who came up with that idea and came up with those particular words. And I think what resonated with me, and I immediately said, that, of course, that's what my life has been all about, is trying to think of Islam. So the center, the center stage and center item is Islam in multiple fashions and multiple criteria, multiple uh, places, but it's Islam essentially beyond borders. In in other words, thinking of Islam in a way that doesn't allow one to restrict oneself to a single group, a single time, a single place, or a single language. It's not to say that there isn't a core and there aren't recurrent elements of what is constituted as Islam, but I think that if there is an underlying symmetry and convergence of the various parts of my own life's work is to think, first of all, in an engaged and sympathetic matter. I guess that's not so obvious to everybody, but for me, it's it, one can't really engage a topic, especially one um, as, as broad and yet as, as uh, resonant as Islam without engaging Muslims and thinking, first of all, about not just an entity, but also the persons and the groups that one considers. So there's an empathetic 
even more than a sympathetic approach to the topic of Islam and Muslims, but then to also have a range that isn't limited either spatially or topically or thematically, or as uh, Sher Ali, as you said at the beginning, and, and also uh, Alimiya, uh, even by disciplines. So, of course, I'm a humanist. Of course, I think about religion, and of course, I think about history. But I also take sociology and anthropology um, as very serious uh, ad- adjunct and parallel disciplines that have produced a bunch of value. I just quoted Clifford Gertz, who would probably shy away from thinking of himself ever as a humanist, but I view Clifford Gertz as well as many sociologists, anthropologists, as fellow travelers and voyagers and also uh, productive scholars in, in, in the field of Islamic studies. So I think that if there's a single theme, it's that I, I try to cross borders in my own thinking, but I also try to recognize that Islam, while it has um, a con- coherent and uh, a really, for me, a, a, a polyvalent message, which is uh, as much hopeful as it is fearful, uh, and it crosses all kinds of borders, that is something that uh, has animated me from from the time I was 17 years old to the time of now when I'm 79. So throughout my life, I've been animated by this engagement with Islam, but I think the subtitle of this reader uh, etches what is best. It's Islam Beyond Borders. Ali, in the inter- uh, you know, a really brilliant introduction to the book, you talk about two key terms uh, through which uh, a lot of the chapters in the book are framed uh, and that you consider to be very central to uh, Bruce Lawrence's scholarship. And those terms, of course, are civilization and cosmopolitanism. So I have a question each for, uh, for, uh, for, for each of you. And Ali, for you, uh, tell us a bit about how you employ these categories in the introduction and why did you consider them to be so central and pivotal uh, to Dr. Lawrence's uh, scholarship, uh, the way that you explain it in the introduction. And then to you, Dr. Lawrence, how would you describe the work and significance of these categories? Uh, both, of course, are very contested categories as well, uh, civilization, uh, cosmopolitanism. So I think listeners will really benefit from hearing from you how you approach these categories and why have they been productive for you? Why have they been important for you in your work, your earlier work and also your more uh, recent work? So Ali, maybe we can start with you. Yes, thank you, Sher Ali. Um, I would say that civilization as well as cosmopolitanism, these are heuristic categories um, in in the work of Dr. Lawrence. And so they are really um, trying to bring out the heterogeneity of Islamic sources. So he's um, like Hodgson, Dr. Lawrence is very careful in his deployment of civilization. So Hodgson, for example, said that our definitions of civilizations or civilization must not be hypostatized as if it had a life independent of its human carriers. Um, So it's the human carriers of civilization that, that, that are really emphasized. And so civilization as an analytical term in Dr. Lawrence's scholarship neither amounts to the repression of our basic instincts, as, as um, was assumed by Freud, nor does civilization mean neat cultural blocks, which is the um, Eurocentric definition of civilization, and this comes up in the civilizing process of colonialism. So these are not the two definitions of civilization that Hodgson and Dr. Lawrence employ. Rather, civilization is a heuristic to study um, cross-cultural dif- differences trans-historically and transpatially. So that's what I would say. With reference to cosmopolitanism, likewise, cosmopolitanism in um, Dr. Lawrence's work is not to be confused with uh, liberalism in camouflage. It is really specific to um, two things. One is uh, adab, which is both etiquette, but also literary sources that... um, Muslims and non-Muslims in an Islamic setting used for moral and ethical formation. So adab, um, civility, or as well as literary sensibilities, literary slash ethical sensibilities, this is one meaning of cosmopolitanism. But another meaning is um, just an openness to world making. 
which we see in um, even Muslim theology and Islamic laws emphasis on um, the on basically creating possibilities for survival and livability through the law. So, so I'll stop there. Well, I'm, as always, really pleased to follow and in every sense to also uh, concur with what Alimia said. And I, I think that, like many things, the term civilization wasn't what I, or cosmopolitan, neither of these were terms that I thought I would be spending a lot of my scholarly career pursuing. And what Alamiya did in the interview, and I should say, by the way, that I've sent a couple copies of this book to friends of mine who are far from being scholars. Most of them are friends who know I'm a scholar and may have read an occasional piece by me, but not very much. And uh, everyone who's read it has said, um, you know, first of all, uh, I don't know what all these topics are about. They sound pretty academic to me. But they said, gee, that interview at the end is really great. This guy understood a lot more about you than I think uh, uh, I would have imagined anybody could. And so I want to just call out that for people who are not specialists, the interview that Alamia had at the end uh, where he asked certain things of me were really important. And one of the things I realized is that in talking to him and responding to his questions that come out in the interview at the end of the book is that civilization has been part of what I unconsciously studied since I've been an undergraduate, since I was undergraduate at Princeton, I thought of, and took my first class with Jim Kritzik in Islamic philosophy. I had known that there was a larger Muslim world and that there was something out there that was connected um, by categories that were transnational and independent of local influence. Uh, but I had never really thought of civilization as that organizing category. And cosmopolitanism was sort of like it is for many people a background term that, that can be just, as Alamia said, for some a stand-in for liberalism disguised or otherwise directed. But really what happened is, um, and Alamia brings it out in the interview, is that uh, following the time that I was in India and an oligarch, I really uh, studied Marshall Hodgson and began to think about how he used the term civilization and talked about Islam as part of world history and it was really through my engagement with Hodgson, which really only happened well after I was a grad student, after I'd been teaching at Duke, after I'd gotten tenure, after I'd been in India. It was only in the late 70s when I really began to think seriously about civilization and to think about what it meant to talk about Muslim, Islamic, or following Hodgson, Islamic age civilization. And so the um, if I had to cite one other influence besides Hodgson, uh, there is the Marxist um, scholar Raymond Williams, uh, Marxist post-colonial scholar Raymond Williams, who wrote a book called Key Terms. And I read that book also sometime back in the late 80s, early 90s when it came out. And Williams says that the, the difficulty is that most of us take key terms like civilization, like cosmopolitanism for granted, and don't try and refine the nuance. And so reading Raymond Williams on key terms and the importance of vocabulary for society and culture, I realized that I have to think more deeply about both civilization and cosmopolitanism. And that's what I tried to do in subsequent writings. Uh, and so I really got, as many people have done besides me, I got my real education after my PhD. And it came through, first of all, being in India and then doing some extensive reading after India. And among them was the the three volumes of Marshall Hodgson, which only came out in the mid seventies after um, I had already begun teaching. And after, in fact, I'd done my seminal period of time in India from 1974 to 1976. That's a great segue to my next question, which is, uh, you know, as one goes through the reader, uh, we sort of know this about you having read your work, etc. But one really gets a good sense that uh, the influence of Marshall Hodgson on your scholarship, um, uh, so could you talk a bit about that, Dr. Lawrence? What, tell us a bit about how you uh, stumbled upon the venture of Islam. How would you describe his uh, uh, ways in which he has informed your scholarship? And then, you know, since we're talking about Marshall Hodgson, of course, one of the categories that he's most well known for is the category of Islamicate uh, that I know that you've also very productively employed throughout your career. And recently, of course, as you know, it has come under some critique, most prominently, you know, in the work of uh, the late Shah Ahmed's uh, What is Islam? 
So a two-part question. Could you describe a bit Marshall Hodgson's influence on your scholarship? And then how would you uh, respond to or address perhaps these recent critiques around the category of Islamic hate? So uh, I'd be happy to answer it first and then to hear Alamiya's reflections. But my, how it influenced me to speak in the first person, the way it happened, uh, as I said, was 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 after the mid-70s when I'd had uh, a period of two years uh, post, uh, post-PhD post and actually post-tenure uh, when I was able to go to India from 1974 to 76 and live in, in Aligarh. Um, and... I heard a couple people there talk about somebody else who had been an American historian who, and I was associated with the history department at Aligarh Muslim University, that there had been another historian, American historian who had come and been in Aligarh for a while and that he found this a very congenial place to rethink his own views of world history. And it wasn't until after I had um, become acquainted with Marshall Hodgson, in fact, much later in life, that I discovered that that other early American historian who had been in Aligarh was, of course, Marshall Hodgson, and that after he finished his PhD at Chicago, he actually took off a year and spent it in Oligarh to sort of get a sense for himself of what was the nature of this broad experience of Islam that he described as a chapter in world history. So I think that the, the thing that, just, that I didn't realize our connection in Oligarh until after I'd finished reading the book and thought about it a lot, but the part that really struck me so deeply and influenced my earlier work uh, was the notion that there is not a single trajectory to modernity and that what's often called the modern West is really part of some greater global process called the great Western transmutation, which is too big a word or phrase to have in most people's minds. So Hodgson abbreviated it by just calling it the GWT, the great Western transmutation. And so in an ironic sense, even though I was trained and I think uh, both Shirali and, and, of course, Alamiyah know this, but many of the people who read the book may not realize that I was trained as what used to be called a medievalist, not an Orientalist, God forbid, but a medievalist with interest in various uh, civilizational traditions and especially in their literary affect. So I had studied uh, Arabic and some Persian, but also earlier Turkish and then at Yale as well, Sanskrit. So I studied a variety of languages in different parts of the world outside of the West. But I never thought about the West itself as a, as a kind of parochial or limited or geographically circumscribed category until I read Hodgson's three volumes, uh, The Venture of Islam, Conscience and History in a World Civilization. And it was really the third volume, which is the one that's been most often criticized by a lot of people. But it was one that really struck a chord in me that recognized that instead of thinking of the West as transforming every other place in the globe, to think about how various parts of the globe contributed to what has been called the rise of the West. In, in McNeil. And of course, it's ironic that McNeil, William McNeil, who gave uh, currency to the term rise of the West, was uh, himself a colleague of Hodgson's in the Department of History at the University of Chicago. So it's really through Hodgson and through the third volume and for people who don't know it, and many people will not know it, and certainly I would not encourage them to read it unless they have a lot of free time to read The Venture of Islam. But when you read the third volume of the three volumes, you realize that the Great Western Transmutation was, in effect, the outcome, the distillation, and the convergence of many other elements in world history, with the West being the beneficiary. And it's not to say that there weren't agents and of change and creativity in the West that produced it there, but the processes, and one, one must forget, one must not forget, one must remember that Hodgson was not trained as a, an Islamicist or even trained as somebody who was an historian. His first undergraduate major was economics. So in one sense, what comes up in dist- distilled form in the venture of Islam is an economist who's become a humanist who's been trained uh, to think about processes in a Weberian uh, mindset, but look at literature and 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 aesthetics, including production of art and architecture, as a part of what becomes civilization. So Hodgson started out with economics, and ended up looking at the broad span of human history with a broader, um, what I would call post-Weberian view of culture as economic process, but also with humanistic developments that are equally important. 
And that has influenced me the way in which I think about civilization. Um, I'm not averse to economic or social science interests. I, I try to foreground them in some of my own writing, but I am at heart a humanist uh, who looks at the writings and also the artistic production and architectural monuments of the world as being equally important with the words that people have produced. Um, Ali, do you want to add something to that? Uh, I just want to draw attention to chapter four of the reader, which is uh, which is called Genius Denied and Reclaimed, Hodgson's The Venture of Islam. Readers will find more detail on what Dr. Lawrence just said in that chapter, which can also be um, accessed from the LA Review of Books online. So that's all I want to say. Thank you. So Ali, uh, let me just say, uh, uh, Ali, before you ask your next question, that, that I have... I've said this before, but I should say this now that that um, I, I've, I've planned all my life. And so therefore, I've been subject to accident. Almost everything that I planned has turned out differently because of accidents and, and time and of influence. Right. And so when, when Alamia mentions uh, cha- chapter four, and this is a reprint of, of a review I did on Genius and I reclaimed Hodgson's Adventure of Islam. It was only by accident that I was asked to do this essay for the, the L.A. Review of Books. And, and w- when I asked them why they wanted me to do it, they said, well, it's because you've been teaching the venture of Islam and some of your students still remember it. And by the way, it's 40 years since it was published. So if you look at that date, right. 2014 is exactly 40 years since 1974, which is when the venture of Islam was published. Wow. So I never intended in the whole time that I was engaged with Hodgson or teaching him to finally write an overview. But again, the reason I'm calling attention to it before the next question is that one of the things they required me to do was to use what what, what many people have said is very hard for academics, non-technical language. So here I am, you know, engaging somebody who everybody knows is a very highly schematized and and very technologically uh, engaged writer, namely Marshall Hodgson, and to do it in kind of plain speak, or as I said in one of my essays, something that Joe Sixpack could pick up and say, oh, that's a different view of Islam. Maybe I should think about it. So the LA Review invitation to write a 40-year retrospect on the venture of Islam allowed me to rethink Hodgson. And that's when I came up with the title Genius Denied and Reclaim Hodgson's The Venture of Islam. Yeah, teaching Hodgson is a good segue to my next question because uh, the next question is about teaching uh, the Bruce Lawrence reader. Um, uh, Alimia, you mentioned uh, uh, in the introduction and also in the interview that you conducted towards the end about the accessibility of this text and the accessibility of many of the texts. And I think not only the recent work that Dr. Lawrence has done on the Quran, or other, but even the earlier work, in fact, the, the prose has, remarkab- has been remarkably accessible uh, without, of course, compromising on the depth and the profundity of the thought. Uh, but the question I want to ask you, Ali, is uh, I know that you have some experience teaching Dr. Lawrence's uh, texts in your classes, and now the reader has come out. Uh, do you have any uh, uh, insights or any sort of thoughts about how uh, uh, teachers at the undergraduate or even perhaps graduate level might employ the reader in their classes? What kinds of classes? Just uh, some open-ended thoughts that you might have on that front. Sure. Thank you for that question. I think... Um... The reader is organized methodologically, so it it should appeal to teachers not just in Islamic studies, but also in area studies and religious studies. Um, I have used two books, um, the Quran and Biography, which is a very accessible introduction to the Quran, and it looks at uh, the reception history of the Quran by looking at different lives over the last 1400 years. So there's a chapter on uh, Muhammad himself, but also Aisha. There are chapters on buildings such as the Dome of the Rock, as well as um, the Taj Mahal. There's a chapter on famous exegetes like Tabari. Um, And there there is also a chapter on Ja'far al-Sadiq, the Shi'i Imam, and from the family of the Prophet. But there's also a chapter on Robert of Ketan, which um, he was uh, the Latin translator of the Quran. And there there are chapters on modern Muslims such as Iqbal and Sayyid Ahmad Khan, but also W.D. Muhammad. So I really like 
how, you know, one of my friends, Sajjad Rizvi, Professor Sajjad Rizvi at the University of Exeter, described Dr. Lawrence's approach in that book as kaleidoscopic. And that's a very useful uh, text at the undergraduate level because it introduces um, students both to the content and the stories, the themes, the structure, the style of the Quran itself, but it also introduces them to the diversity within Islamic receptions or within the Islamic reception history of, of that text. So I think that the um, difference and diversity of Islam come out very strongly in the, the these two texts that he's written for a broad public readership, the Quran and biography, and also in who is Allah. And um, Allah becomes not a theological category in the 2015 book published by UNC Press, Who is Allah? But Allah becomes at once a sociological category as well as an intellectual discursive category, but also uh, a skeptical category. So with these three lenses on who is Allah, he looks at how people contest the meaning of the divinity through their actions that have, you know, political, social, economic, cultural implications. And and so, but but Allah also is an object of admiration for Muslims. So there's enough attention to that because you have a whole chapter on dhikr, on remembrance of God, but you also have chapters on, you know, terrorist um, uses uh, of, of, of Allahu Akbar, for example, or Allah online. So this kaleidoscopic um, approach to presenting Islam's diversity is really useful because you can um, complicate and diversify binary um, categories through which Islam is studied and through which um, Islamic sources are are framed. And so I, w- I would say that it uh, the the sheer abundance of attention to um, not just demographic diversity, but also experiential and intellectual and sociological diversity in, in both of these texts is what really um, makes a strong case for their pedagogical uh, effectiveness. Um, thank you, Ali. Um, the next question I have is about this uh, landmark publication, Defenders of God, that Ali, you also mentioned earlier. Uh, that in some ways is very central to your intellectual profile, Dr. Lawrence, and especially in terms of how you're known outside of Islamic studies, and was, I think, an important uh, moment uh, in your uh, intellectual trajectory also in terms of moving towards more modern topics. Um, could you t- tell our listeners a bit, share a bit about how did that book come about? How did this turn in your career come about in terms of your writing, Defenders of God? And the question that I have for you is, uh, the, the relevance and the urgency of that book has become even uh, more uh, punctuated, I guess, as time has moved. Uh, so how would you, if you were to revisit, rework, or perhaps even further reinforce your central argument in that book, which of course was about the modernity of fundamentalism, uh, which seems uh, like an argument which is quite commonplace today, but your book really was one of the first articulations of that of that argument. Uh, how would you uh, uh, re uh, uh, approach or rework that argument in light of all that's happened uh, since that book has uh, was published, even even in the last decade for for that matter. So your reflections on defenders of God. Around. So, Charlie, you 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 like to extend this interview to two hours? <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, Dr. Lawrence. If, if it all if it almost take me a whole hour just to, to describe all the elements of how that book came to be, <clears throat> but I should say that um, just as I said earlier that much of my life has been so well planned that I've been subject to accidents that have changed all my plans. And one of the things that I was certain after I returned from India, I had, I, I can't think of how many texts, uh, 200, 250 would be a small number, but at least that range of 200, 250 texts in Persian that related to Indo-Persian Sufism. And I had immersed myself in both Sufism and Indo-Persian during the time that I was in India and at Aligarh Muslim University. 
And so I came back intent that I would, I would write the definitive work on institutional Sufism in pre-modern India. And if you look at all the things that I have published um, since the mid-1970s, you will find many things that relate to Indo-Persian Sufism, but not that overall major text, which when some people ask me, they say, well, when is it going to come out? And I say, well, in another lifetime, because my life trajectory changed with the Iranian revolution. In the same way that I can say in the latter part of my teaching career, my trajectory changed because of 9-11. But I would say the most formative, if I had to compare the two, I would say that that, uh, that in some way the Iranian revolution was even more formative for my, my scholarly and perhaps my general outlook than 9-11. And it's because it was so totally unexpected and because it shifted the way people thought about Iran from being a secular, modern, um, pro-Western um, authoritarian government to one that was suddenly revalorized as religious and pre-modern, if not anti-modern, and therefore thinking about Islam in, in, the, in the public square in a way that no one had quite imagined it before. And so the term Islamic fundamentalism became very commonplace. And every time that someone would ask me about it, I would say, there's no such thing. There's Christian fundamentalism, and that has been now transposed into something called Islamic fundamentalism, but there's really no such thing as fundamentalism in Islam. And I think I made that argument for at least a year or two years until finally I, I collapsed because nobody would, nobody would, would if they, even if they believed me, that they would write about it and say, oh, yes, now we're going to drop the word fundamentalism. So I, I went back again to resources and I thought about the fact that um, many of the people that I have read have said that most categories, most key terms, Raymond Williams, of course, I've mentioned says this, but other people have also said the most key terms are not only lexical, but also stipulative. So it's not only what the dictionaries say, it's what you stipulate that something means that can change it. Wittgenstein, of course, is another one that comes to mind as a major uh, linguistic philosopher who said that words don't have single meanings, they have meanings in different contexts. So I went back to the term fundamentals and said, if I'm going to use it, if people are going to insist that I talk about Islam and Iranian Islam and, and the Islamic Republic of Iran as a, an aspect of fundamentalism, then fundamentalism itself has to be redefined. And so it was really post the Iranian revolution, post 1979, that I began to think about this notion that fundamentalism, first of all, is not intrinsically or necessarily or even logically connected to something called Islam. But if one's going to make that connection, one has to redefine fundamentalism in order to make it and Islamic as well as a Christian. And then I decided also how to be a Jewish category for lots of things that have happened in Israel that also seem to suggest a compatibility with what Wittgenstein calls the family resemblance of fundamentalism. So this book um, that now is Defenders of God um, came about because I had decided that I would take time off from my work on Indo-Persian Sufism and my great fascination with both the texts and the lives and the larger uh, influence of institutional Sufism in South Asia and the Muslim world, I would take just a couple years off and do something on this category called fundamentalism and make it a comparative study. And I did this, and I thought I'd done a fairly good job, and then I made a, a fatal mistake, which actually turned out to be the biggest benefit of all. I gave it to my mother-in-law to read. <laughs> and my mother-in-law said, this is a very interesting work, but it is not something that anybody other than me will ever be able to read and understand. And I said, why? And she said, because you use too many technical terms. And she then translated, my mother-in-law translated, or I should say edited with some strong advice about translating my concepts in that book into something that was readable. So I had the idea because of the Iranian revolution and I got the book because of my mother-in-law. And then as it turned out, once I had rewritten the introduction following her instructions and her severe editorial hand, which of course turned out to be magnificent, without her I could never have done it, um, I then, then ran into a roadblock at University of California Press, which had agreed to block it because they said, we love what you did in Islamic fundamentalism. Of course there's Christian fundamentalism, but there's no Jewish fundamentalism. So this is something which actually I don't even think Alamia knows, but a couple of the readers for University of California Press said, it's a great book, we'll do it, just leave out the Jews or leave out Jewish fundamentalism. 
And I just, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that if I'm going to have a stipulative rather lexical definition of fundamentalism, that it includes, in fact, I even made the argument that if I had time, I would include Sikhs and Hindus and Buddhists, that every tradition that has scripture has the elements and the possibilities for becoming quote unquote fundamentalist. But since I'd done all my homework and my research and my writing on Jews, Christians, and Muslims, I limited it to those three. And luckily for me, Harper and Rowe and the editor there simply loved the fact that it was comparative, embraced the fact that it could include all three Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and published it. But they had one caveat stronger than University of California Press. They reserved the right to pick the title. And that almost was a Donnybrook because I was so convinced that it was the struggle of religion against the modern world and that that ought to be the title. And the editor said to me in no uncertain terms, you can write the text, but we have the right to give the title. And the title will be, and you've already read it and heard it, and now it's become a, a household name, Defenders of God. So I take some credit for the, for, for the content of the book, for its accessibility. It, the, the, the plaudits go to my mother-in-law. And the title goes to Harper and Rowe. Um, uh, for the next question, I want to bring us back to to, to India. And uh, we, being true to the reader, we won't follow any chronology in this interview. Uh, and I, I actually want to take us to the interview of the of the in the book towards the end. And Ali, you do a very fantastic job in bringing out some aspects of Dr. Lawrence's scholarship and his intellectual career that may, would not have been known to, to, to many people, I think even those who have been his students or who've been in touch with him for many years. And I found um, something really moving in the interview. And uh, of course, uh, you know, you along with Professor Karl Ernst are among the pioneers of the study of South Asian Islam and especially South Asian Sufism. Uh, and a lot of the texts uh, are in the reader as well. But the question I want to ask you is about this moment in the interview where you describe your stay in Aligarh and your stay, um, uh, 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 you know, during in Nizami's time there. And you talk about ways in which you personally got so invested uh, in the Sufi tradition, in visiting Dargahs and the other sort of Sufi landscape of northern India and elsewhere, and how you affectively became so entangled in the Sufi sort of uh, 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 choreography of life. Um could you share a bit with our listeners? I think it will be really, uh, since now it's been uh, you know, in print, so I think it's okay to ask you about this. Could you share about this, this personal dimension to your investment in South Asian Sufism, your time in India, and the way in which you became so affectively invested uh, during your time? Could you tell us a bit about what you uh, tell Ali in the interview? Yes. Um, first of all, I, I want to say that I've had lots of interviews in my life but uh, when I was there at uh, Seattle University with Alamia, and we had this interview, which now is, is become edited, um, maybe not with the same deft touch as, as my mother-in-law, because she's no longer here, but at least uh, Alamia has a good hand at, at compressing my rhetoric and making it more accessible to others. We had a wide-ranging scholarship uh, interview about my scholarship, and I think I even lost track a couple points of where I wasn't and he would come back and say, no, no, we're going to stay in Oligar for a while. <laughs> he really made me go back to that period of time from 74 to 76 and to revisit it. So one of the things I didn't mention in that interview, which uh, I think Alamian knows and you too may know, Sherali, is that um, when I first came to Duke, I wasn't teaching anything about Islam. I was doing Indian civilization because there was nobody here who knew who had Sanskrit. Actually, there was somebody else fellow named Harry Parton, Professor Parton, who did all the courses on Islam. So I was really doing Indian topics. And then uh, I met this fellow uh, who was uh, better known as a Columbia professor, but he was at Duke, fortunately for me, a couple of years named Ainsley Embree, E-M-B-R-E-E. He's a fairly prominent um, historian from Columbia University, uh, but he also had a period of time when he was at Duke. And Ainsley, I called him Ainsley, Professor Embree said to me, um, you know, you've spent a lot of your life uh, thinking of, as a grad student, thinking about uh, India, but you've never been to India. And I said, well, no, I'm married and have a family. I don't have a lot of uh, chance to do it. And he said, well, I've got this deal where I can give you a summer trip over there, uh, all expenses paid, and you only have to leave your family for, you know, six weeks. 
So I took his invitation. It was from American Institute of Indian Studies for a summer scholarship for people who've never been, people interested in India but never been there. The reason I'm mentioning this is I said, well, if I'm going to go to India, I should go to the Muslim university that I've heard a lot about, Aligarh. And I went there, and the guy who was then the acting provost was a fellow named K.A. Nizami. And so I sat there and talked with him, and he said, this conversation is useless. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's useless because there's so much that I want to say to you, but I can't tell it to you today or tomorrow. You have to come back to India and you have to spend time here, not just passing through Aligar for a day or for a few hours. You have to come back and live here. And I said, why would I want to do that? And he said, well, because I'm going to invite you to stay in my house. And so it was an early visit in 1973 that then led me to apply for this scholarship, which I got from 74 to 76. And that was how I really became immersed in Aligarh, thanks to Nizami Saab, as I call him. Not only was I allowed to uh, study at the university, but I could stay in his own in his home because he, in the meantime, had been invited to be the Indian ambassador to Damascus. So his home was vacant, and I occupied his home, stayed there for two years. I knew Persian somewhat, but I didn't know there. I to be honest, I didn't even know there was such a thing as Indo-Persian. I thought that Persian, like Arabic, is, is a language that crosses borders and doesn't change. Of course, that's not true of Arabic either. But I kind of thought of, that Persian, like Arabic, kind of had a saran wrap, um, one-fits-all quality about it. So I learned that was not true. I, I, I got tutored in Indo-Persian. I also was able to learn Urdu. Uh, I was able to learn Urdu. And above all, I got to live in a Muslim community where I could have lots of contacts with different places and travel as I did to Ajmer, which is where Marnadine Trishi's tomb is, to Hyderabad, where there are many tombs, and Gulbarga is close by at a place called Sayyid Muhammad Gesu Daraz. And of course, um, to go to Delhi, where I went to both the tombs of Kudbuddin Bakhtiar Khaki and, of course, the person with whom I'm most closely associated, Sheikh Nizamuddin Olia. So all that came about through one trip, through one, one fellow, one colleague at Duke telling me I had to go to India. Oh, by the way, I'd already been to Pakistan. So that, I think maybe that was another incentive for me. He said, you know, it's not all in Pakistan. There's also some Muslims in India. Uh, I, of course, knew that, but I hadn't thought about going to India. Um, so Embry, Ainsley Embry was responsible for that. And that really changed the whole direction of my life, the period of time of, of, of previous summer visit in 73, and then applying for and getting this scholarship, uh, and, uh, again, an AIS uh, fellowship uh, to be in India from 1974 to 1976. And that's the basis for my developing this affective, not only uh, constructive and, and uh, analytical, but also affective relationship to Islam and to Sufism. Well, on the analytical aspect of it, actually, Ali, I want to bring you to the conversation uh, and not to put you on the spot, but as yourself, now a very prominent scholar of uh, South Asian Islam, uh, how would you reflect on, um, uh, you know, the texts that have come in the reader also from uh, the earlier work on Asharistani to the later sort of models of the heart, Fuad al-Fuad, that translation uh, to, uh, you know, Sufi martyrs of love, of course. Um, how would you describe for our listeners the sort of the analytical intervention of uh, uh, Dr. Lawrence's uh, scholarship on South Asian Islam, on Sufism, in terms of the intervention that it has made for the study of South Asian Islam, more broadly speaking. I know it's a really broad question, but uh, taking a step back as sort of yourself, an intellectual historian of the field, how would you describe this intervention and the significance for you know scholars like yourself now who are doing work on South Asian Islam? Thank you, Shirley. I think that um, for me, the analytical purchase of Dr. Lawrence's scholarship is that it um, gets the study of South Asian Islam out of its insular academic silos. And that happens um, both thematically and, and methodologically. So thematically, for example, the theme of translation or the, the question, is mysticism the right translation for Sufism, right? And also religious experience, and that gets us to have a conversation with people like William James and more recently uh, scholars like Amy Hollywood. So I think thematically, um, the, the, the work on 
South Asian Sufism or Sufi traditions and institutions and personages and texts, it takes um, the field away from an insular approach. And methodologically, the emphasis on comparison, close reading, um, philological rigor, I think those are still things that we, we need. So that's how I would um, characterize the analytical purchase of his scholarship on South Asian Sufi traditions. And, and I would say that in addition, um, you know, so in addition to his scholarship on South Asian Sufism, there, there is a piece that he has written in which he has theorized and studied um, what has become a Sufi traditions in modernity writ large. And I am here referring to uh, chapter 11 in the reader, which is Sufism and Neo-Sufism. And this chapter is not restricted to South Asian Sufism, but it, it also has substantial sections on Sufism in West Africa, as well as in um, Central Asia and um, the Ottoman Empire, as well as Sufism in Southeast Asia. So that that's an excellent model of taking... Um, of putting South Asian Sufism in a comparative framework so that the scholarship on South Asian Sufism doesn't reproduce the intra-Muslim divisions that characterize that object of study. So as a final substantive uh, uh, question, I want to turn to some of the more recent uh, scholarship of Dr. Lawrence that is also is uh, prominently featured in the reader. And that, of course, has to do uh, with your scholarship on uh, the uh, Indian virtuoso artist, M.F. Hussain. And I was really struck by this category that, Ali, you also describe in the introduction quite helpfully for the, for the readers, this idea of metaphysical secularism, which is a category which Dr. Lawrence you employ in trying to theorize uh, uh, M.F. Hussain and his contribution to uh, aesthetics, art, and Islam. Uh, for listeners who may not be that familiar, uh, could you explain a bit what this means, metaphysical secularism, and how does it fit to M.F. Hussain in your work? Yes, I, I really, I, I'm glad that that term uh, seems oxymoronic, seems like it's contradictory to people who, really, because uh, one thinks of uh, metaphysics as being in the in the range of, um, of theology and philosophy, but not of the secular world. But what I think is so prominent about M.F. Hussain and the reason why I was attracted to his scholarship. And again, when you talk about accidents in life, uh, I just have to say that the reason, the only reason I even know of M.F. Hussain is because <clears throat> one of my former students um, actually <clears throat> became um, a prominent person in Qatar. She herself is part of the royal family, Sheikha Mayasa Athani. And Sheikha Mayasa, as she's known uh, and correctly known as for, for her, her work in, uh, in various stages of art, and uh, museum collections, um, Sheikh Mayasa was was somebody who insisted that my wife Miriam Cook and I come to the opening of the Museum of Islamic Art, the thing that which I M Pei had designed in Doha, and we went there in two thousand eight. Um, so it's only really been in the last twelve years of my life that I've been aff- affiliated with M F Hussain, and the reason it happened in two thousand eight is because his work was on display there. And as it turned out, he himself also came for the opening, for the opening of the, the Islamic Art Museum in Doha, which was in 2008. We met. Then I went back to Doha in 2010 and got to know him better. And the more I saw him, the more I realized that here was a man who was deeply engaged by what some people would call pluralism. But I would call secularism in the sense that he really believes the public domain is one that all religions and all people who are also are not religious should occupy with equal commitment to justice and equality across the board. So he was a, primarily an ethicist. And so I could have said a metaphysical ethicist instead of a secularist. But, but he, he is not a secularist in the, in the notion that some people narrowly think of secular as being anti-religion or non-religious. And when I, in fact, went back, uh, I had the great honor, one of the great honors of my life was um, to actually have the chance um, to go back and to be the curator for a, a program here, it's called Sir Filard, which uh, journey across the the run, which of course is a Quranic dictum, 
uh, but it was the title of a, of, a, of his last art show, which was done in Doha after he posthumously uh, last uh, December, December of uh, 2000, uh, 2000 and, and uh, not, not this past 2020, but 2019. So he had he had he himself, uh, M.F. Hussein, died in 2011. But I knew him very well. I was in Doha and organized a conference around his last birthday, which was attended by several people including Sumati Ramaswamy, who knows much more about art and art history and M.F. Hussain than I ever could know. But I got to know him and to engage him, and I felt deeply connected to him because he was also profoundly spiritual in how he thought about art and how he represented art. And if you look at his era before he's 90, you would say, oh, this is a guy who maybe have a Muslim name, but he hasn't done much about Islam. Well, he's done periodically things about Islam, but he's mostly engaged with the larger Indic tradition, which would be called Hindu or Buddhist or Sikh, but not specifically Muslim or Islamic. So for me, he represents somebody who is the absolute exponent of what I call Barzakh logic. And he himself, and we used to talk about Barzakh as a term that comes up in the Quran that meets, it means where two things meet, and it, it can be two bodies of water, it can be two realms of existence, it can be two different people from various conflicting traditions. They can meet across the boundaries that separate them without either one transforming the other. So when I use the term secularist and metaphysical secularist to talk about M.F. Hussain, I mean he's like the term Barzakh in the Quran, which means a place where two different things meet and neither one tries to change the other, but in their meeting together, they change the environment around them. And so I think of M.F. Hussain as somebody who's changed both Muslim and Hindu, both Islam and the larger Indic tradition, because the way in which he blends the two together without saying either one collapses into or becomes the other. So as we're coming to the end of our time, um, uh, I was wondering if, uh, uh, Ali and Dr. Lawrence, could you please speak a bit about what you're working on these days? Uh, uh, I'm sure you're working on multiple projects, but maybe you could briefly describe to our listeners uh, what's what's next in terms of what you're working on these days. So uh, Ali, perhaps we can start with you and then Dr. Lawrence will have uh, sure. Yes, I'm working on a volume for Edinburgh University Press called Muslims in South Asia, which uses different physical and institutional spaces as the lens to study the diversity of Muslim um, religious and cultural life in South Asia and, and also in its diaspora. That's a, what I would call a macro history. My um, monograph on um, the prolific intellectual and theological, mystical, legal um, uh, output, the body of work of Ashraf Ali Thanvi is more of a micro-history. But even there, I am using genre as the analytical category to make sense of his work. Um, So these are my two projects. But uh, I also just want to take this time to say that um, Dr. Lawrence explores um, M.F. Hussein's concept of metaphysical secularism also in an article called All Distinctions Are Political, Artificial. The fuzzy logic of M.F. Hussein, which was published in 2013 in the journal Common Knowledge. So I, I would say that um, for an engagement with fuzzy logic, which is actually a philosophical term, um, and, and an Islamic artist, readers can can consult that piece, which is not in the reader, but is on his academia.edu page. Thank you. Well, there's so much to say, and I just want to say that on the fuzzy logic, uh, I did a response to uh, an essay, uh, Rethinking Religion Through Wittgenstein, uh, from Talal Assad, that will come out in uh, in critical culture in uh, in, in next year, in, in, in well, this year, later in 2021 where I use the term fuzzy logic in, in talking about um, the, the con- latest contribution of Talal Assad. My own projects, very, very quickly, uh, I, I have another, uh, what I call um, actually uh, a manifesto rather than even a monograph. It's a manifesto about the term Islamicate uh, and how it can be used to describe cosmopolitan within a larger range of uh, experience. And that will be a manifesto that comes out from Blackwell, or now Wiley Blackwell, uh, later this year, it'll be called the Islamicate Cosmopolitan Spirit. And then I have two collaborative projects, um, both of which I hope will see the, 
the light of day this year, 2021, or possibly 2022, because they're both big projects. Uh, the one I've been doing with my former colleague and, and still close friend, um, Vincent Cornell, who's now at Emory, and we're doing the Wadi Blackwell uh, Companion to Islamic Spirituality. We've been working on this since 2013, for, for um, almost seven, seven, seven years now, and I hope it's going to reach completion uh, this year. And then with another uh, Muslim uh, friend, not a colleague, but somebody with whom I've been closely associated, um, Professor Rafi Habib from Rutgers, uh, we are doing for Norton, for W.W. Norton in New York, um, a verse translation of the Quran, where he's doing most of the verse and I'm doing most of the commentary. And we hope that will be done and out either late in 2021 or 2022. Perfect. The Bruce Lawrence Reader, Islam Beyond Borders, published by Duke University Press in 2020 uh, by Ali Altaf Mia and Bruce Lawrence. Uh, thank you so much, Ali and Dr. Lawrence, for your time, for this wonderful treasure of a resource. Uh, congratulations to both of you on this uh, terrific volume and publication and look forward to many more celebrations of this book and also the conversations that it will generate. And thank you so much for coming on uh, the New Books uh, Network. Thank you, Sher Ali. Thank you, Sher Ali. So this was my conversation with Professor Bruce Lawrence and Ali Altaf Mia about the wonderful volume, The Bruce B. Lawrence Reader, Islam Beyond Borders. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books and Islamic Studies. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books and Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.